0: Welcome back to the second season of the Peaceful Political Revolution in America podcast, a series of conversations with America's top scholars, writers, journalists, and activists on the topic of our Constitution. Thank you so much for your support and continued interest in a subject that I personally find to be the most important topic of our time. Season one was an amazing journey for me, and I would sum it up like this. Americans, for the first time in human history, established the inalienable right of the people to not only create their forms of government, but to change and to alter them whenever they deemed necessary. By now, that mantra may sound familiar to everyone, even in today's muddied political climate. But just how is this fundamental unshakable right exercised? What precedents from our founding period define our role as sovereign citizens? And what lessons can we take away from those revolutionary Americans who set the United States on its unique and democratic path? Christian Fritz joined the University of New Mexico law facility in 1987 to introduce legal history to first-year students a new concept to legal education. Even today, few law schools offer such a course. Fritz had just become the first person to complete a program at the University of California in which he earned a PhD in history at Berkeley, along with a law degree from Hastings College of Law. At the University of New Mexico Law School, he taught a variety of legal history courses along with property. He contributes a deep knowledge of legal and constitutional history, along with an exhaustive research style. In addition to numerous articles, books, chapters, and reviews, Fritz has written books on legal history, including Federal Justice in California, The Court of Ogden Hoffman, And in October 2007, Cambridge University Press published his long-term study, American Sovereigns, The People and America's Constitutional Tradition Before the Civil War. This seminal work challenges traditional American constitutional history, theory, and jurisprudence that sees today's constitutionalism as linked by an unbroken chain to the 1787 Federal Constitutional Convention. It examines the idea that after the American Revolution, a collectivity, the people, would rule as the sovereign. Heated political controversies within the states and at the national level over what it meant for the people to be the sovereign and how that collective sovereign could express its will were not resolved prior to the Civil War. The idea of the people as the sovereign both unified and divided Americans in thinking about government and the basis of the Union. Today's constitutionalism is not a natural inheritance, but the product of choices Americans made between shifting understandings about themselves as the collective sovereign. It's a perfect topic to begin the season with. So let's dig in. Chris, welcome to the Peaceful Political Revolution in America podcast. It's just fantastic to have you on the program today. Well, John, thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to join in this conversation. It's the most interesting and important part of the story, this idea of sovereignty. You suggest the book is about constitutional dinosaurs. Right.
1: And why I make that uh, analogy uh, answer that uh, question, um, in order to answer it, we really need to contrast the pre- proceduralism, the idea of proceduralism from what I refer to in the book as revolutionary constitutionalism. From today's perspective, the prevailing and largely widespread assumption is that for constitution making to be legitimate, it must abide by a given process that if there are procedures to revise or amend constitutions, those must be strictly followed if changes are to be considered legitimate. In contrast, however, revolutionary constitutionalism did not make proceduralism the test of whether constitution making or constitutional revision was legitimate. Instead, here legitimacy hinged on whether actions rested on and had the sanction of the people, what was primarily important was applying the constitutional principle introduced by the revolution and almost immediately widely embraced by Americans of the idea of the sovereignty of the people. And it was namely the sovereign authority of the people and not process and procedure is what gave American constitutionalism its legitimacy. And from the time of the revolution in 1776, Up to and long after the federal constitution in 1787, many Americans were preoccupied by the role and authority of popular sovereignty in the context of their constitutional governments. But with our modern assumptions of proceduralism, such ideas can appear to be constitutional dinosaurs, ideas that once had vibrant life but now seem extinct. Because we've had a change in our
0: perception of our own role over and in government, I guess you're kind of saying that that's changed over time. I'm thinking about Thomas Paine and how he brought this idea to Americans that they could create the government that they themselves wanted. And that was the idea that you're referring to, which is
1: now kind of perceived as being extinct. Or not the indispensable touchstone of legitimacy, of constitutional legitimacy. Uh-huh. And 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 one of the ways of uh, uh, I mean I think we need to unpack this idea of revolutionary constitutionalism. Yeah. But but before doing so, it might make sense to digress to explain why those ideas, the, the ones you mentioned in terms of, of of Thomas Paine and what I call revolutionary constitutionalism, seem like dinosaurs. There's a short answer for why that might strike us that way, and. Essentially, the answer is that the study of American constitutionalism has been hindered by our overwhelming focus on the federal constitution and the single convention that produced it. And at one level, of course, this focus on the federal constitution makes perfect sense, right? Um, The most important constitutional questions that all of us face that affect all aspects of our lives involve interpretations of the federal constitution. Yeah. whether it's the scope of national power, the executive, or the presidency, or the scope of our individual rights and liberties. Everything seems to, 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 to flow out of what the Supreme Court does on those questions. But with respect to questions of constitutionalism, which is different from constitutional questions, mm-hmm. questions of constitutionalism, by which I mean the source of authority for American constitutions, popular sovereignty, and its potential implications, this focus on the federal constitution essentially amounts to a fingernail scratch on the watermelon of American experience. Ah. And this focus, this federal focus, what it basically does is it, it neglects the crucial first decade of state constitution making and constitutional thought that was unleashed by the revolution. And it also doesn't take into account the many scores of state constitutional conventions after 1787. And if that's not enough, the federal focus also ignores numerous movements and controversies in which Americans grappled with the implications of the sovereignty of the people. And as you know, the the book deals with a number of those in separate chapters. There's a chapter on the Shays' Rebellion in Massachusetts in the 1780s, The so-called Whiskey Rebellion in Pennsylvania in the 1790s, and Doors Rebellion in 1842. And so the combination of what we have paid attention to and what we have neglected in our constitutional history has helped to create this impression of constitutional dinosaurs. That's brilliant. And I hope that really sinks in with our
0: audience. You're saying there's a perception aspect to our understanding of ourselves as Americans, and it's not always complete. It's like you said, a scratch on the husk of a watermelon. You know, so we're looking at that scratch, but not the watermelon. You had all these states that were before the revolution, British colonies, and they had to invent their own constitutions. Each one of them did that kind of in their own way and their own process. But at the core of that process for all of the states, and it was ubiquitous. And you did an, an it's just a breathtaking job of explaining in detail what went on in these states. But it it still amazes me. They all had to come up with their own constitution and they were all based on this principle that The people were the
1: sovereigns, right? And 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 to set that up, to set that challenge up and and to appreciate this this notion of revolutionary constitutionalism, it helps if we go back to and look at the Declaration of Independence Hmm. uh, in terms of how it justified the Revolution.
0: Yeah.
1: And arguably it did so on two very different grounds. And the first entailed what we're all familiar with the invoke invocation of the natural law right of revolution but the second that is less well known is entailed canceling the contract that the king had hypothetically entered into with his subject so if we take the first one the natural law basis we're all familiar with the famous articulation by jefferson that uh, announced all men Were endowed with certain unalienable rights, Mm -hmm. among which were life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then the famous lines: "And whenever any form of government becomes destructive of those ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and institute new government." Mm -hmm. And arguably, what what not arguably, what Jefferson is doing in the Declaration at on one level is he's itemizing all the ways in which the situation has gotten so bad. That oppression has basically driven the people to their backs to the wall. They have no option but to uh, invoke this natural law right of revolution. They're not doing so for transient circumstances, not lightly. The precondition is things have to be so horrible as to justify it. And so what he does in the declaration is he itemizes all the things that have happened that justify this natural law right. The right of revolution went back to Britain. They, they understood that right. Exactly. And, and it was widely uh, understood that all peoples had this right. It, it was a natural wall right. And so that's what Jefferson uh, is doing in the, in the Declaration. But what he's also doing, what also is implicated, is this hypothetical bargain between the king and his subjects. Um, and here the idea was, under English constitutional doctrine, that somehow, or at least the image is, the understanding is, that there's a bargain between the king and his subjects, the people. They owe him allegiance in return for his protection of their welfare. So there's a reciprocity here. As long as he protects their welfare, they owe him allegiance. And the notion in this constitutional doctrine, articulated by the famous commentator William Blackstone, the the great figure of English common law, was that if the king repudiated his contract, if he basically turned his back on his obligations, the people arguably had something that he called the law of redress against public oppression. And what that basically meant is that all bets were off. The contract had been abrogated by the king and he lost his authority over, over the people. And again, if you go back to the Declaration, the itemization that Jefferson gives offers, what is the litany? The king has done this, the king has done that. And and here, what, what's very useful is to think about the image that graces uh, American sovereigns, that picture uh, by Wolcott of, um, the, uh, the statue of George III on horseback being torn down by the revolutionaries who just earlier in the day heard the Declaration of Independence that's being publicly uh, read. And so they gather at Battery Park, some with crowbars, some with ropes. And the image you see is the, the statue just about to topple. And around the, the statue, of course, are the revolutionaries doing so. And at one level, that picture, that image, illustrates this rejection of the king's authority that arguably was justified by his fundamental breach of his contract with the people, his subjects, the colonial uh, subjects as well. But at the same time, that image isn't just the rejection of the king's authority. It's displaying the essential heart of revolutionary constitutionalism which is the displacing of the person of the king with the people as the sovereign. Henceforth in America, it was the collective people and not any king who were the sovereign. And if if that were true, then obviously if the people were sovereign, it made no sense that they would bargain with themselves about the protections they needed from government. And as a result, the revolution rendered this British hypothetical contract or model of government irrelevant. Yeah, I believe
0: it was Thomas Paine who said that the Constitution was an agreement between the citizens.
1: Exactly.
0: Not between the citizens and the ruler.
1: Exactly. And his great contribution was his ability to speak so clearly and so forcefully in a way that resonated with so many Americans about the absurdity of aristocracy and monarchy yeah and and that that famous image of 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 the king and aristocrats riding the common people you know like like a, a man rode a horse right and a beast of burden and his whole point was that a rejection of that notion of an the rightful authority to govern based on on birth um uh, made made no sense that is it's a remarkable.
0: A, a, a remarkable change in attitude and understanding of ourselves. And it's, it's, it's like an evolutionary jump in the political landscape. I think what Americans tend to forget is that when we celebrate the 4th of July, for example, we, and we think about the freedoms that we have, the freedom to create our own government
1: is what we really celebrate as Americans. Exactly, and, and and that crucial idea of of recognizing and embracing the idea that the legitimacy of all governments had to rest on that sovereignty of the people. In 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 reaching that conclusion, Americans were poised uh, to break exciting new ground when they they turned to create written constitutions that established their new governments. That you alluded to in terms of the going from the the colonial status to to state governments. But here it's worth remembering and noting that Americans didn't invent the concept of a sovereign people. That notion, that concept of the consent of the people, that idea of even a sovereign people had been discussed by 17th and 18th century theorists and philosophers. Um, So it wasn't invented by the Americans but in self-consciously and explicitly creating governments at a single point in time that rested on the people's sovereignty, Americans uniquely departed from past history. And, and they were acutely aware that wow. they were breaking new ground. Right. It, it was extraordinarily exciting for that, that enterprise. And they were also aware that they were breaking new ground from the, unwritten, the so-called unwritten British constitution. This is a great point. Because Britain has a number of
0: documents that they refer to as their unwritten constitution, right? Can you shed a little light on that? First of all, does it go back to the Magna Carta and Treaty of Westphalia?
1: Exactly. The British constitution collectively was the product of centuries of, of traditions and customs and practices, and as you say, written documents, uh-huh. which which collectively come to be considered and and are referred to as the British Constitution, sometimes the ancient constitution. Uh-huh. Uh, but it was not, as what happened in America after the revolution, the product at one fell swoop at a moment in time when self-consciously people were invoking their sovereign authority to create governments that expressed their will in terms of the government that they wished to be uh, uh, subject to and was their own creation. And in, in the headiness of that initial constitution-making, and all this language of the authority of the people, in that process, some of these first state constitutions included so-called alter and abolish provisions, very much the language that we just talked about in terms of the Declaration of Independence. But importantly, in the context of these revolutionary constitutions, this revolutionary constitutionalism, those provisions underwent an important Transformation away from the natural law basis, which we saw expressed in the Declaration of Independence, but instead of a last ditch effort to justify that could be justified by the total oppression of government, those provisions now in state constitutions come to be understood as a constitutional principle of the people's inherent rights. And as the sovereign, the people could, quote, alter and abolish their governments whenever and however they liked. And there are numerous instances of Americans bragging that all people everywhere had a natural law right to revolution, but in America, we had a constitutional basis for asserting our sovereignty. And that notion, uh, the power of that idea underscored the, the incredible force of the sovereignty of the people both at the same time a legitimizing force and at the same time a subversive force, right? The excitement and nervousness of the potential for popular sovereignty was recognized from the very beginning. And very quickly what emerges is both some who take a more expansive view of of the idea of popular sovereignty in terms of how to think about that principle, and others take a more constrained view of it. Uh, And they they contested those competing views and wrestled over them from the time of the revolution all the way to the eve of the Civil War. There's so many things I'm thinking about right now.
0: Thomas Paine saying governments should not be inherited. They shouldn't be imposed by force. They shouldn't be imposed by heredity, chance. They should be created by people consciously in the present moment to serve their needs as an expression of how they want their government to work
1: for them. Right. In fact, the nature, the special nature of written constitutions is a reflection of that idea. Yeah. If you've embraced the notion of the people as now the collective sovereign, how do you know what their will is unless they articulate it? The written constitution is an expression of the form of government that they're adopting and the powers that they're according to to their to their public servants, right? They're the sovereign. The government serves them, not the other way around. It's it's phenomenal. We should be so proud as a
0: country that we were able to achieve that level of, what would you call it, a political awareness, consciousness. It's it's remarkable. And as Americans, we should really be proud of that. But the, the problem then becomes, has it turned into a dinosaur? And as you were saying, You had the pro and con sort of forces in America competing against each other. I think this this is what you talk about in the book as the determinists and and the regulators. You had people clearly who wanted to create their own constitutions, their own states, Kentucky, Vermont, and, and they took the liberty that they had to create a government
1: that would serve them. And to your point, they imbued the language of the revolutionary language of the power of the sovereignty of the people. They absorbed that. And so what you find in these Western regions, right, outside of the confines of the original 13 colonies. Yeah. You have groups of settlers who are talking about that they owe, they want to create government and they know government comes from them. Right. And so you, you have this, this amazingly depthful embrace of this, this concept. It's not just the revolutionary leaders, and it's not just people in the, in the main towns. You've got people in the frontier fully embracing this, and the power of that idea, of course, and, and its potential, right, of, of both being destabilizing. If you can make governments, you can unmake them, right? Yeah. What's fascinating in that, in that duality that simultaneously legitimating and subversive nature of this concept of a collective sovereign is that what you find despite that tension, that one of the perfect examples of how people embrace that idea and, and yet were trying to cabinet or, or, or occasionally trying to restrain it is, is George Washington, right? The great example of his uh, farewell address. Uh, which he gives in 1796. I've read it many times. It's stunning. And in the context of this whole notion of of wrestling with the meaning of revolutionary constitutionalism, what's fascinating in that speech, right, he's taking leave of his countrymen. And so this is his last bit of advice. And and, and in the course of it, as you know, he identifies, he, he, he speaks of the right of the people to alter and abolish their constitutions of government by which he means both state constitutions and the federal constitution. Then he goes on to insist that every every constitution was sacredly obligatory on the people until changed, in his words, by an explicit and authentic act of the whole people. And for Washington, that explicit and authentic act could only occur through established procedural channels. So he's doing something very interesting here. He's embracing the principle, but now he's trying to cabinet it. He's trying to suggest that it requires, in a sense, the approval of the government and it has to be consistent with this process before they can change it. And in fact, if you read that, how he ends that that uh, that address, he comes fairly close to almost suggesting even though he's, he's admitted and he's in, he's talked about the sovereignty of the people, he's, he's hinting that there's really sovereignty in the government, in some sense, that has to be understood before you can change the Constitution. And after he gets finished with this address, he gets pushback from some people, including the Pennsylvania printer. There's a printer by the name of William Duane, who, who takes Washington to task for seeking to basically reverse two decades of constitutional understanding about popular sovereignty and for, in a sense, suggesting that the people were subordinate to existing government and its procedures for constitutional change. And he makes this fairly explicit. And of course, he gets ridiculed and threatened because, you know, he's, you know, he's talking back to the father of the country. But he has a good point because there are other Americans who, like Washington, embrace the notion of a collective sovereign, but who take this more expansive view that you don't have to be tied up with the procedural niceties before one can identify authentic and legitimate constitution-making and constitutional revision.
0: Yeah, those framers were, were a real mixed bag in that respect. They expressed support and agreement in the idea that the people were the sovereigns. There wasn't much debate about that. I think in all their writings, most of their letters.
1: I think they're basically unanimous on that point. You're hard pressed to find anyone. There, There's a little flirtation by some, including folks like Hamilton, soon after, in the midst of the revolution and shortly after it, who have this longing for, maybe we can perpetuate a monarchical system of government. But By and large, almost you know, across the board, that's, that's a non-starter. And so, as you say, their commitment to the idea of that governments are going to have to rest on the people comes with some degree of misgiving about the capacity of ordinary people who are going to be part of this enterprise. Yeah, And so that's their dilemma. They're, they're, yeah. they're tied to this wonderfully powerful idea that there is a departure in, in the politics of the day, right, creating... Governments based on the authority of the people and and then you have to live with what happens if a majority of those people get get go astray or or they go in directions that you're not that comfortable with. It was a risk they took self-consciously. Um, and it's and it's a it's a risk that is at the basis of our constitutional democracy today. it's it's just as much a, a question that demands our attention to the requirements of the people as the sovereign, to pay attention to their government, to participate in democratic processes, to, to educate themselves and and in essence, engage in in the entirety of what it means to have a popularly based form of government. It's not something that's gonna work by itself. You can't abdicate that responsibility. It's not the job of your leaders. It's not the job of the Supreme Court. It's the job of each and every citizen to take responsibility for civic engagement. That's a heavy lift.
0: That's a heavy lift. As you point out in the, in the book, the rulers would rule and be ruled and not have a, a role at all in, in forming the government, or, or they would also have a role in forming the government.
1: The image I think that, that, that you're picking up on is, again, one of the great complexities and wonders of this, this whole system of power of, of the sovereignty of the people what they come to realize is that the people can be conceived in multiple capacities yeah they could be understood as the sovereign as in when they gave consent as they did with the federal constitution in ratifying that document that came out of the federal constitutional convention and in that capacity they were acting as the sovereign giving vital force to the document that needed their approval but at the same time, they could serve and they could be the ruled, right? Once they created governments, they were subject to laws passed by their own government. So they were were the ruled in some sense. But a third capacity was they might well be conceived of as the ruler, as in when they got rid of representatives that didn't do their bidding. When they voted these guys out of office, they were acting as the ruler. They were saying, To the hoose, you knew the rules, you broke the rules, (laughs) get out of here. And when they took the the position that they had a right to instruct their representative, not simply to elect them, but to continue to offer them their views of what the representative should do. Right. And see how much of a departure this is from a British model of an Edward Burkean notion of representation, Mm -hmm. where you basically. Uh, you, you You elect someone whom you think uh, you have confidence in, and then they proceed to do what they think is best for you. Yeah, They have no accountability to you. They are now exercising their best judgment. In America, this didn't make as much sense. In fact, it made no sense. If the people were the collective sovereign, when they put public servants into office, they expected far more of a response and an entitlement to tell them what to do. Uh, and, and so the whole nature of political representation is, is fundamentally shifted by virtue of this, this revolutionary constitutionalism. We the people, those three words, yep.
0: change the world. Yep. Today, I think most Americans have lost touch with the idea that it's their government. They, they, I think they know that a lot of people will say, well, yeah, of course it's our government, but they don't seem to, first of all, they don't understand political systems very well to begin with. So they're a little lost when it comes to what they're talking about, because they, a lot of people wouldn't know the difference between a bicameral legislature or unicameral legislature, you know, so you have to know those things about political systems in order to kind of create government, if you're going to be the owners of government, the creators of government, of your own government, you have to know how political systems work. And most Americans, I would say, don't know that much about that. Over time, Americans lost touch with this
1: idea that they would be sovereign over their governments. Right. And, th- and that, that came with, obviously, responsibilities and obligations. It wasn't simply uh, a source of authority and power. Mm-hmm. It, it it entailed both sides of the equation. And 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 one, of course, one of the great questions uh, that was part of uh, an elusive nature of, of popular sovereignty is this whole idea that some have advanced, and some scholars um, uh, make the argument that it was a fiction. It always was a fiction. Ah. Uh, it was this glittering generality that really wasn't real. And uh, I take issue with that because it, it wasn't a fiction. It, it, it had reality. It had force in terms of how Americans proceeded to act in the creation of their constitutions and how they proceeded to debate uh, how to change them. Um, and, and as elusive as some of these aspects were, that is to say, who were exactly the people? And how did you know when they spoke, right? That That's a great question. Uh, when are you hearing the voice of the people? Well, right. they wrestled with that. Over time, what emerges is, is an understanding that the people are essentially the voters, those entitled who, who have the franchise. And you recognize when they as a sovereign people um have spoken if you can identify their approval, their ratification by a majority of them, right? Right. That comes to be seen as the touchstone for the ultimate um, uh, validation and the manner in which you you make real this this very important theoretical but nonetheless um, um, uh, working constitutional principle. It's not just a the theory. It, 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 has, it has reality that plays out in our constitutional history. The consent of the governed was what was required to make government legitimate. Yes, and that, that, and that, that could take a, a direct, th- there could be a, a direct manifestation of that.
0: Yeah, it's interesting what you said about Washington's farewell address. You know, he says, the basis of our form of government is the right of the people to alter and abolish their constitutions of government, when done by an explicit act of the people as a whole. Uh, they were, they did it behind closed doors, and there were only 50-some-odd people there at the convention. So not all Americans sat down to write the Constitution, but they did, they did manage to get endorsements from at least nine of the states, right, which was very different from what the Articles of Confederation suggested they needed to do but they, they
1: got the consent of the governed. But there you're making a very important point, John, that, that this, this notion and this reference that uh, 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 Washington has to an authentic, an explicit and authentic act of the whole people. Yeah. Um, what's fascinating about that remark, apropos of the convention, is that the Articles of Confederation, right, which, uh-huh. which existed before they, they meet in Philadelphia, the articles are considered by Americans. There's plenty of the literature. They understood it as, as a They understood it as their first constitution. It required, by its terms, amendment could only occur with a unanimity of all 13, 13 states. Yeah. So if Washington's right about the explicit and authentic act, the established procedural channels of changing the articles could only take place with 13 out of 13. Instead, what they did in the convention, as you pointed out, is to call for 9 of 13 of the states to ratify, and then it would be deemed ratified by the people. But the idea here, and where this resonates both forward and backwards, is the idea that they were aware that they were circumventing the existing Constitution. They were not not following the procedure strictly right it's not proceduralism strict proceduralism but as Madison points out he said what we have put before you you the American people considering this document in your ratifying conventions in each state is a dead letter it is merely an idea it has no life until you breathe life into it right and then he goes on to say and if that happens all other irregularities can be overcome. Mm. So so the the, wow. the understanding is that if it gets the ratification of the people, then we don't have to worry about the fact that we circumvented the procedure. And 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 so there you have it. I mean, it's not just that state constitution making and revision from the beginning through the 19th century reveals this dynamic. It's there at the very beginning with the federal constitution. So if you want a precedent for circumvention conventions you've got one in spades uh, in 1787.
0: <laughs> Washington and those guys were revolutionary leaders. They led a revolution not only in 1776 but at the convention. They they changed the political system peacefully. This is the thing. They had the wisdom the wisdom to go into a convention of fellow Americans and sit down and hammer out how they might want to govern themselves, the entire nation. They did it peacefully with their pens and their words. And three months later, they came out with an idea that as you say, was a dead letter basically until they had the ratification conventions. And when a plurality of Americans agreed that they would abide by that constitution,
1: it was game on. We had a new a new government. That's right. That's right. Because th- they understood in 1787 that the federal constitution, just like the state constitutions that had been um, uh, enacted and had been promulgated prior to 1787, had to rest on the authority of the people. The big challenge that immediately uh, gets kicked off uh, after the ratification of the constitution is how exactly to think about who the sovereign source of authority for that federal constitution was right this is where we get into the whiskey rebellion and and
0: if this is the beginning of that debate is well these people don't want to pay their excise taxes what are we going to do about that because you know in their mind and and people like you pointed out in in Kentucky and the western regions and Vermont they were not being served by the government that they had they they felt they needed Better representation. They needed a government that would serve them. So this conversation continued to evolve after the convention was over.
1: And it focused on initially, the debate seems to be more of a binary one of, okay, if we've got a constitution that rests on the sovereignty of the people, how do we think about that sovereignty? Yeah. And what emerges as one of the, the main debates is on the one hand you have arguments by nationalists who say well and webster is a great example the constitution is based on the people of the united states as a nation right a national people is what gave the the sovereign source for the constitution and then on the other hand you have the so-called sovereign states rights theorists who say no the, the 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 constitution really is based on sovereign states right the sovereignty of individual states yeah and we know that that one, that second possibility, essentially is jettisoned with the Civil War, right? We reject the idea of nullification. After the Civil War, that theory goes out the window. But before that happens, there's a third middle ground that emerges, and that's Madison's concept of the sovereignty isn't the, a national people. It's not, it's not that, nor is it the s- sovereign Uh, states. Rather, it's the people of the states um, in their collective capacity, what he called the people in their highest sovereign capacity of the states, plural. So he posits this idea of the people of the various states acting collectively rather than as a national people and not as independent sovereigns. That's what he calls what we created in the Constitution, the compound republic. It's neither, as he put it, wholly national nor wholly confederal wholly federal so he's rejecting either extreme and arguably madison has the better of the argument because at the time nobody expected that that national government to swallow up the states i mean they, they clearly were on record that they were in they were enhancing the power of the national government right Part of the claim of the articles is they didn't give the national government sufficient power. So they wanted to energize the national government. Yeah. But they also said that there were things left to the states. And, of course, the, the great example of that is Article 10, which says all powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited to it by the states are reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people. Mm. So there was a division of sovereignty. There were some things things that that the national government had and other things that the states had. And that idea of divided sovereignty was, again, a brilliant idea that was unheard of at the time, because the received wisdom at the time was you had to either have a national government or the sovereign states, a confederal model or a national model. The idea of dividing sovereignty was deemed to be A violation of the principle as they called it of an imperium in imperio a sovereignty within a sovereignty it made no sense by by the received wisdom at the time and so the genius of the framers in that sense was to invent federalism to come up with an idea of this of something that was in between that was a balance that was divided that had an inherent tension that needed to be observed and monitored and the equilibrium between those two levels, and that complexity is what we live with today.
0: I have two questions about that. One is that when I hear the word sovereignty, I think the definition is supreme authority, right? So, how can you have divided sovereignty? That just seems like a malpropism. It just seems like that's you, you can't have divided sovereignty. It's it's got to be in one
1: entity. And the other one is. Did they actually invent federalism? To take your first question, that's exactly um, the the head scratching nature of what they produced. Is that that the, the understanding was th- that it it normally had to be one or the other, and yet Madison and, and goes goes ahead and he describes. No, we've done something else here. You know, we 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 have split this atom of sovereignty. We have been able to to separate it out, and, <laughs> and it's it's what we've achieved. Um, the lines between those two levels of government aren't bright, clear, and precise. Um, as he said, we didn't have the language for it. We didn't have the conception for it, but their intention with one another, and he expected that equilibrium to work itself out over time. Uh, So so, so in that sense, it was uh, baffling by the terms of political terminology at the time, but nonetheless, that's what they set in motion with what he called the compound republic. No doubt one of the factors that led
0: to the Civil War, because it was all about the southern states wanting to do it one way
1: not the federal government's way well and that that's where the 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 equilibrium of federalism uh-huh. got got out of control right and and, and uh yeah, yeah we we ended up with a constitutional catastrophe yeah of course the civil war repudiated the notion of of secession but even after the civil war once we've We've undergone Reconstruction once the, the Southern states are readmitted and we move forward with the new Constitution as it's been amended by the so-called Reconstruction Amendments. We still have, again, federalism that purports to put some powers in, the not all powers, many powers in the national government, may, maybe even more by virtue of the Civil War, but not all of them. And there are others that remain with the states. So
0: right.
1: to the point of, 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 of that, Uniqueness of federalism that that perpetuates that continues, and we have it in front of us today. The incredible challenges that go into such a system were not resolved obviously in 1787, uh, and they weren't resolved by the by, by the Civil War, and they're not resolved today. We have an ongoing um, uh, enterprise of 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 navigating. Uh, each generation, if you will, what the proper equilibrium of that federalism looks like. And, and over our history, it's, it's gone back and forth, and it will continue to do so as long as, as John Marshall put it, we continue to have uh, the, a, a constitution that basically uh, uh, anticipates and expects this division of authority, power, and sovereignty. Did the uh,
0: Lincoln's Gettysburg Address uh, shed any light on that conundrum? Did it did it not resolve it on, in some respects?
1: It's it's interesting you mention the Gettysburg Address because what what Lincoln does in that speech, interestingly, is it echoes the very terminology you raised earlier about the sovereign, the ruler, and the ruled because what does he say famously mm-hmm. this is a, this is a, a government of the people by the people and for the people yeah if you parse that out of the people right yeah that's the the sovereignty by the people yeah. that's the ruler and for the people that's the people as the rule so he he basically is channeling that notion of this complex multifaceted capacity of of what it means To have a government that's essentially resting on a a notion of the people as the collective sovereign that's astounding and it plays itself out in in uh, those three different ways and and if if you will you can still see where this surfaces in the progressive era right in the in the turn of the 20th century and as the progressives managed to push one of the their great populist tools the idea of the initiative right, where the people themselves can make law. And if you think of that tool or device of, of, of initiative, um, it's yeah. sort of a, a victory of sorts for the, the uh, expansive view of revising constitutions, right? It seems to give power to the people directly. But if you think of it, mm-hmm. they may have won that particular uh, battle, but they lose the war because what do they do with the initiative? they tie it up in procedural requirements. So that in order to to act directly, Mm -hmm. all these steps, and they're very detailed ones that you find in all the initiatives, in all the constitutions that today still have them, that you have to go through. So here you have through the back door proceduralism rearing its head again, and not this, this notion of bypassing process in order to exercise that direct uh, authority and yet on its face it looks like a very populist and it is to some extent but if you if you if you parse it more closely you see that there's it's really a victory of sorts for a more proceduralist view of how the people's authority gets played out <laughs> wow it it's, it's it's phenomenal i mean
0: i'm thinking now about I, i've often said that the the right to create our own government, to alter and abolish our government in this country, is our most fundamental democratic right? Mm-hmm. I feel like that's true, and that's been pretty well
1: established. I think, I think that's right. I mean, it, it goes to the, the essence of the notion that all the authority that exists in terms of, of governmental uh, apparatus rests upon this idea of of the people's authority, that that we, we, we don't embrace a notion of governmental sovereignty. We've rejected monarchy and we've rejected the idea that government is its own end in and of itself. It only serves, obviously, the people who are the sovereign basis of it. That's its purpose and it owes its existence to the will of those people who can then change it if they manifest their voice in this majoritarian way, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: not a splinter group, right? You can't pick up your marbles because you want to be a different, different state. And, and, you know, it has to be this holistic, (laughs) if you're talking about the federal constitution, Uh you know, all of the American people, the majority of that. Yeah. If you could come to that understanding, if you could manifest that, if that were legitimately expressed, then I think you're back to exactly your point that would validate a change, whether it was within the procedures or not. Talking about
0: competing views of constitutionalism and and democratic societies, right? Mm -hmm. Page 175 in your book, The Defense of Societies by Madison, Jefferson and other Republicans reflected one understanding of the constitutional settlement of America's first written constitutions. On the other hand, the case against the societies advanced by some Federalists reflected a view of the people as the sovereign, who played a limited role in the ruled, and who had no role as the ruler. The controversy over the self-created political societies formed part of the broader, ongoing debate over the meaning of the collective sovereign and the relationship of the people to the government now considered in the context of the federal constitution yep yep
1: and 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 there you have it i mean do you continue to have a right to speak up and and to direct your representatives or once you elect them are you supposed to keep quiet and and basically assume that you've ended your role in that process and as you say madison and jefferson Defended the the so-called uh, self-created the the societies, the democratic societies, as being an authentic expression of the right of the sovereign people to continue to give directives and to participate in their government. Oh, yeah. And the more the opposite side is taking more of this proceduralistic view. Yes, there is sovereignty, but guess what? It it's of a limited kind after the elections take place right and and so the idea of 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 having meetings and calling into question whether the the policies of government are appropriate or constitutional that was seen as subversive right yeah uh when in fact we all you know would accept today that 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 such critiques are clearly within the ambit of appropriate political discourse but as you say it, it it gets framed as part of that comp- competing sense of, um, of, of, of how to uh, uh, put into place and how to conceptualize uh, this very powerful notion of uh, popular sovereignty. I was uh,
0: on a road trip last year and we happened to go through Winchester, Virginia. And uh, we stopped at a burger place, fifty fifty burgers and beers. It was great. And <laughs> across the street, Winchester is a great little town. Across the street was a log cabin, a, an old one, you know, colonial style. And I thought, I wonder what that was. And I went across the street and looked at it. And there was a plaque indicating that it was George Washington's field office. Mm. And I was just stunned to see it there. You know, on the corner of the street in Winchester... It's, it's a beautiful uh cabin uh, and I walked around and it wasn't open so I couldn't go inside but I stood on a rock where I'm sure Washington stood many times looking out to he was he was fighting Indians at the time though so he was on the frontier mm-hmm. and I thought this guy he is a remarkable character he was also the, the richest man in the country when he was, Chairing the convention, right? His his net worth was something like four hundred million dollars in our dollars today. So he was doing pretty good, but he had a vision for society. I think that was, uh, it was it was kind of shaped by the times that he lived in. There was a lot of instability in the country. Mm-hmm. He had to really protect and and guard against instability. On some level, I appreciate that. Restraint that he had in terms of the democratic powers that the sovereign people would be allowed to exercise. I, I kind of appreciate that. and And I think at the same time, he left the door wide open when he said, "Except by an act of the people as a whole." Now that to me, right, when the people as a whole can organize themselves to create a government that they deem better than the one they were living under. Right. Perfectly fine.
1: Yes. And 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 as we've discussed, it needn't be on the basis of preconditions of things being terrible or right. at the you're at your wit's end. Right. Sufficient that you wish it to be changed, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and that's the power of it. It's not a natural law right. It's not a bargain with the government. It exists by by virtue of the inherent authority that the people have. And and your, your point about Washington, I mean, one of the other aspects that, that always struck me is, is that his reputation, uh, his deserved reputation among his countrymen was in large measure achieved by virtue of his self-discipline and his his scrupulous attention to the notion that as military commander, His power was subordinate to the civil authority. And the greatest thing he did in the minds of his contemporaries, who who had a pretty good sense of the history of politics and ancient uh, republics, was to give up the power he did. When he had the ability to hang on to the military power, when he hands over his sword, symbolically and formally, that abdication what ran against the grain of received wisdom that absolute power people who had power wanted more power and if you had absolute power that was going to be corrupting and the fact that that he gave that over and gave that back that that image of cincinnatus right he came as the farmer from the fields but and now he's going back as as he was to to his farm to his plantation and all his slaves right well leaving that aside yeah that, in that limited sense, that 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 expression of subordination, and and again, an act which was uncharacteristic of what many people thought human nature tended to do, is 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 one of the uh, sterling aspects of of, of why uh, he became so um, uh, res- respected amongst uh, his his cohort of revolutionaries.
0: Why why he has such a Incredible legacy and is still remembered as the father of the country. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Chris, I I could spend, as I've said to you, I think a few times, I could spend an an hour talking to you about every page of this book. Oh,
1: <laughs> well, that's kind of a joke.
0: <laughs> no, I no, I and I I don't think I'm exaggerating. You should see. I mean, I could sh- I could show you how how many things I have underlined <laughs> in here, but the point is to the listeners. I, I feel this book explains who we are as Americans, why why Americans are exceptional, right? It, the, 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 American exceptionalism is is a dangerous concept, you know. I think, but in in the sense that our heritage is that we were the first nation to peacefully organize ourselves to create a government that would serve us. And I think it's incumbent on everybody to, to kind of understand that and to understand how amazing and wonderful that is. And I, I have to say, I, I, don't think, I don't think people could have a good idea until they read your book, uh, how, how incredible it is. There's so much great stuff in this book to know about. I, I encourage everyone to, to get a copy and start reading through it, even
1: if it takes you a year to finish. It's a remarkable achievement. Thank you, John. I appreciate that very much. It it did take me about thirteen years to write it. Yeah, it was a it was a great story, and and you're right, it tells uh, of a of a of a departure that is quite remarkable.
0: Yeah. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Maybe we can do it again sometime. I've got
1: a lot of people to talk to this year. It's going to be a real interesting season. Excellent. No. Well, I, I I wish you good luck on that and. And anytime you wanna talk about monitoring American federalism, uh, I'm I'm happy to talk about that too. It also has a a very arresting image that I think I shared with you earlier. Yes, yes, you did. And I look forward
0: to reading that book too. So Chris, thanks again so much. Have Have a great evening. And thank you again for being part of the show. My pleasure. Thanks so much, John. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I'm going to step it up a bit this season and dig a little deeper into the subjects I covered in season one, as well as a few other things. I began that season with a discussion about Thomas Paine, and it concluded with a conversation with George Van Cleve on his ideas about how Americans might practically organize to exercise the very real power of popular sovereignty, a power we all have inherited from our very revolutionary founders and framers alike. So, imagine being on a road trip for over 230 years. Obviously, our mode of transportation would change over the decades. We would periodically stop for gas and repairs. Certainly, we would change the tires more than a few times. But even then, our mode of transportation might actually just stop working at some point. What then? Would we all have the skills to know how to fix it, or would we begin thinking about how to replace our transportation with something much better? In a sense, our government is like our mode of transportation, and as Chris has just said, popular sovereignty requires each and every citizen to take responsibility for civic engagement. We all have a duty to participate and to understand how we exercise that sovereignty. Ultimately, if sovereignty is something we do not want, or if we forget or misconstrue that right, we put ourselves at risk of losing our democracy altogether. If we were to follow the example of our framers, any new constitution would have to be ratified by 35 of the 50 states. Not bad when you think about it. But the Framers did not necessarily expect us all to follow in their footsteps. In fact, as we will hear about in my next episode, the Framers created a political system that would again largely serve their interests. Yes, the principle of popular sovereignty was recognized, but it was quickly dismissed once the new constitution was the basic law of the land. So who were the Framers? I'll dig a little deeper into their story when I talk with Robert Ovitz about his new book, We the Elites. Before we move on to the many ways in which we could improve our democracy, let's remember who these guys were and what exactly it is that they gave us for a political system. So stay tuned. Robert Ovetz is in the building and he's about to blow the lid on the framers. And just what it was they were up to when they closed the windows and locked all the doors and they began their deliberations inside Independence Hall. Until then, stay safe out there.